Welcome to PNR and This Old Marketing with Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose. Listen to Joe and Robert talk about the oldest marketing on the planet, storytelling, and how you can tell a better story to attract and retain customers. Be sure to subscribe to PNR via iTunes and check the contentmarketinginstitute.com site for the show notes. Enjoy! And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Howdy, 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 content marketers. Today is Tuesday, November 18th, 2013, and welcome to episode one of This Old Marketing. We're coming to you both from Cleveland, Ohio, and the always beautiful sunny Los Angeles to talk about all of the wonderful things going on in content marketing news-wise. As always, well, maybe not always because this is our first episode. I'm here with Joe Polizzi. What's up, Joe? Are you saying that Cleveland, Cleveland can't be sunny or something like that? <laughs> I, I, right off the bat, you got an L.A. versus Cleveland battle here. Well, you know, I have to uh, I have to throw in my sunshine when I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. Great to be here. We're going to have some fun uh, every week doing this show. So this is going to be awesome. It is indeed. So what's up? What's new? Where have you been? Where have you been traveling? We've both been traveling like madmen, and we very rarely get together physically. But uh, where have you been? Boy, it's been crazy, Robert. As you know, you know, we're getting more requests to do content marketing engagements and whatnot. Uh, we did our content marketing masterclasses on Coast to Coast. As you know, we had the New York event and the San Francisco event. Both great events. Oh, fa- fantastic. You know, it's am- what's amazing to me for both San Francisco and New York, and you saw this, that 75% of the people were not from that area, <laughs> which we're targeting. Yeah, it's crazy. So It's absolutely crazy. It was, it was especially true in New York, where we had so many people from out of town. And overseas, which is, yeah. which is nuts. I mean, it's not like they're coming in for content marketing world and coming to the big show. I mean, they're just coming in for a day. And, well, that's the power of Robert Rose, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> they're coming in for the godfather, I think. <laughs> so let's move on to the news uh, for content marketing, what's been going on lately. Um, the first thing that I'll, I'll, I'll note is this thing that I saw – well, just uh, just the last night, in fact, when you sent it over, which is this idea that Forbes is going to be up for sale. I mean, what's up with that? Forbes is up for sale. With all of this stuff that they're doing with native advertising and content marketing, they're up for sale? Well, that actually, that was my question I wanted to ask you is, is there a voice problem with Forbes when you well, they have 1,200, I think, contributors now? And they've got content all over the place, and their brand voice, which is sort of their native advertising sponsored content platform, has been getting all kinds of recognition, sort of the state of the art way that you want to develop a native advertising program. And yet, from what I can tell, uh, their valuation is significantly less than what they looked at it in 2006. So, I, I, do, is there, is there, are they almost? Are they selling this at, at a prime time, or are they saying, you know, we got to ditch it because we're really not sure of the direction? Well, it's an interesting challenge, I think, for a lot of publications these days. I mean, as they start to use the crowd to scale themselves, do they lose their point of view? You know, I mean, it used to be Forbes actually had a distinct and unique point of view, but I think it's something that we see a lot with Huffington Post. We see a lot with the magazines and publications that are starting to use more and more outsourced bloggers. 
do you lose that unique point of view there? And and does that really have an effect on your valuation? I think the answer to that has got to be yes. I mean, you know, you start looking at what's going on in publishing right now and where marketers are trying to use their own content to draw in their own audiences and use their own voice to try and get out to publications that have an audience. They want something that's going to really speak to to their audiences and and, and it, to your point, I think if there's a lot of people that you know are sort of muddying up the waters, the point of view, then as a marketer, I go, really, do I want to just jump into that noise? Well, that's a great point. I mean, we hear it all the time, right? Marketers are coming to us saying, "Hey, we need more and more content," and here's basically the epitome of more content, which is Forbes today, and maybe they just don't have control. Maybe maybe you actually should go toward a flight to quality over quantity or, or what is the mix and match there? It's actually kind of unnerving uh, where you have more brands going and saying, look, we want to be like Forbes. I don't know if that's the right direction or not. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder if, well, who buys them, right? I mean, who who actually, I mean, there's been some speculation that, you know, billionaire, some billionaire might buy. The, I mean, billionaire seems like the, the, it seems like this year's sports team is a publishing, you know, you've got billionaires buying newspapers and newspaper groups. And so there was some speculation that, but would, I mean, could a brand that's really focused on a business message by Forbes and turn it into their own content marketing platform. Well, what what did what did Bezos uh, buy the post for? Washington Post, 270 million, I that's think right. it was, something about, like yeah. that. Of his own money, by the way. That wasn't Amazon money, that was his own money. Uh, what did he find that in a drawer somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Pro- well, he yeah, in a junk drawer, I'm sure he, he's got a check right a little left over a petty <laughs> cash and and bought the post. So he could, you know, there's a good example. He could just say, "Well, I want to by uh, Forbes as well. No, you and I were kicking this around before. I actually think, I mean, look at some of the advertisers right now uh, on Forbes. Of course, you've got companies like SAP who spend a lot of money on brand voice. So they're own, you know, the, the, basically getting their content, sponsored content to the top. And then you've got your traditional advertisers such as you know Lexus and uh, Zerk Financial. I saw Merrill Lynch out there. Why, why don't those people just buy it? I mean, why don't they just say, okay, here's our content factory. Uh, instead of spending more money and, and renting uh, this audience, why don't we just buy this audience? I mean, what do you think about that? I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, I think obviously one of the biggest challenges would be they would probably lose a lot of the writers and content contributors that they're getting who are actually now using Forbes to draw in their own content marketing purposes. So they may lose a, a big number of them. But I think that's an, a really an open question because – you know, you look at what American Express, for example, has done with the Open Network, and it's now something that bloggers really want to go contribute to, even though it's just clearly a content marketing platform. So, for all of those big brands that are trying to reach a business-oriented audience, I don't see why one wouldn't just do that to to try and you know take the Forbes brand and, and, and turn it into something where they can actually have an audience that means something and, by the way, move it into a more distinct point of view for that particular brand. I, don't, I mean, just to your point, you know, Bank of America or, 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 or Merrill Lynch or any of the financial services companies that could do that. I don't think they would lose anybody, Robert. I mean, why would, some, why would somebody not start contributing on there because, uh, let's say, Lexus or, or Zurich or somebody like that buys them? 
I mean, is there is there any is, is there really a difference to journalists today? Have we haven't we crossed over to the dark side for the most part? Because from what I'm from what I'm seeing, what Forbes is already pushing on the site, they're pushing branded content already. They're pushing their own events. I mean, this is a content marketing vehicle like I've never seen before, or like we've always seen before. I guess there's no difference. Really? Well, you may be right. I mean, you may be right. I mean, I think you'd lose some. I mean, you've got certainly you've got. I mean, well, if it's a Lexus or somebody like that, it would be certainly much less than if a financial services company went in there and Intuit, for example. So if Intuit buys Forbes and says, hey, we're going to turn this into our business oriented content marketing channel, do the people that are competitive with Intuit in some way, either from a truly competitive nature, in other words, they offer the same kind of software product or financial services products that Intuit does, or actually from the content perspective, right? So if I'm a small business, if I'm an Amex open network, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a Merrill Lynch or somebody, am I going to let my bloggers go blog for an Intuit owned magazine? I may or may not. I mean, this, it, it really brings in, you know, some of the things that Andrew Davis talks about in brandscaping, this idea of partnerships and, and how content can, you know, can work together. But I, I don't, I think you'd lose some depending on who the buyer was. Well, I think that we should just skip right to the end of the story because Google's going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Google's going to own. Yeah, yeah I mean, very Go- well. Google's going to own everything anyway, so they might as well just you know skip to the next five years and say, "Look, we'll buy Forbes as well." I mean, they, they're doing a ton of content marketing stuff themselves with Zero Moment of Truth, and they've got you know that great quarterly. I think it's called Google Insights. I mean, they're they're doing a lot of this stuff already to this audience. Uh, being four hundred four hundred million dollars is a rounding error to them, and what they have in yeah. cash. I guess I guess the whole take that I have on this, it doesn't matter who buys Forbes. I guess what I'm saying is the money, the investment to buy Forbes is not on the traditional media side like we've always thought it would be, and that's why you're seeing Bezos and you're seeing other companies, non-media companies, come to the forefront because that's where all the money is. True enough. Well, that's a wonderful segue to our next topic that we wanted to talk about here today, which is the whole fiasco surrounding Google and YouTube comments. I mean, this is now reaching, I think, unprecedented levels of sort of backlash. Um, You know, I'm starting to see articles that say, you know, why the YouTube commenting and uh, uh, and assigning it to your Google Plus account is a bad idea. I see articles about why it's a good idea. Um, you know, for those of you who haven't absolutely seen the, the articles that have just been flourishing on the, on the internet, it's basically Google is now tying in YouTube comments into your Google Plus account. So if you don't have a Google Plus account, you can't actually comment on YouTube anymore. So, I mean, what do you think, Joe? I mean, is this, is this something, is this much ado over nothing, or is this something that really they're going to have to pay attention to? I think that <laughs> I think we are at the mercy of whatever Google wants to do. And I, I actually think it's brilliant on Google's part because are people going to stop using <laughs> YouTube? Are they going to stop? I mean, they're, they're forcing everybody in to use Google+. And frankly, it's working from the numbers that I see from the growth of Google+, and it's actually starting to get a little bit of uptick. I think it's starting to work. And it also puts a little bit of onus on the people actually commenting. Uh, and I think you'll see a less, less X-rated and useless commentary because of the fact that there's a person, a real person behind this, and you can't just, you know, have a 
a know-nothing address behind it, you actually have a person behind it because Google Plus says you are a person. Unless I'm reading this wrong. Isn't that kind of what they're trying to do? Well, that's exactly what they're trying to do. But, I, you know, so I'm of two minds of this, you know. So coming to the, the you know, the spirit of what we're talking about on this show, it's, to me, I, I think you're right. I think ultimately Google, you know, has every right to do this. That's their property. I think they are probably right to do it because let's face it, YouTube comments have been useless since YouTube began. I mean, nobody uses YouTube for community. The only thing people use YouTube for is, you know, a distribution network for video because it's free. And, you know, the YouTube comments are nothing but trolls and, 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 and really just useless, um, useless comments. So it's, I think it's a good thing, but classic Google, they're doing this in such a bad storytelling engaging way they're just not engaging their audience in a way that it just to me once again shows how google, how bad google is at engaging their core constituents i mean they're just they're just not very good at engaging and telling a story that people want to be engaged with it's almost like google and facebook have notoriously done this right and this is not a new thing it's just like hey we're making a change here you go here's the new privacy guidelines go go to town Exactly. I mean, well, and you'd think they'd learn, right? I mean, you know, I mean, Facebook has certainly gotten better about it. You know, I mean, look, everybody's going to bitch when, you know, you get certain levels of, of change in terms of service and that gets publicized in some way. So, you know, at a certain level that just, you know, peaks and then valleys and then you, you just sort of you sort of deal with it in time. But the thing that just mystifies me is why Google can't understand that this was going to be a big deal. And figure out a way to make this something that people wanted to do. You know, make it go out, reach out to the Google Plus community, the people that are passionate there, and really try and figure this out, how they would roll this out in a way that made people want to tie their personal and real profile into YouTube comments. Because for those that are on Google Plus and that are passionate about Google Plus, they don't really care because they don't comment on YouTube anyway. And for the people who comment on YouTube, well, they care deeply about you know their anonymity, and so they're going to re- react in a bad way. So it seems so obvious to me that there's going to be a gap there that they had to fill with some sort of great storytelling or great marketing or great engagement, and they just didn't do it. And it just – with the resources they have, it just mystifies me as to why they didn't. Well, so let's move on. Okay, so they're going to do it, and you know, there's, there's no meal couple here. They're, they're going to go ahead and, and make this change, and they have made this change. Is this, does this mean that businesses – uh, should look at Google Plus as an opportunity in some way, or is this kind of no news and, and just more affects the people on YouTube? Boy, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, as you know, uh, Google Plus is definitely on the bottom of my priority list, um, and I think there's a lot of insight. You know, from with the exception of author uh, linking and making sure that you're you know working in SEO to 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 link back your authorship to all your blog posts and the things you're authoring. Um, which is just a very important thing to do. I, I think this benefits YouTube a lot, especially as Google starts to go and move YouTube into more mainstream programming, you know, where they're putting money into real programming, television, film, content that you can buy. I think it's going to be increasingly important to tie in real community into that so that they actually have a defensible position against some of the media that they're going to be competing against. So I think it really benefits YouTube from a business model. I'm not sure that it really drives any more Google Plus uh, business engagement other than consumers are going to really now have to sign up for a Google Plus account if they want to go comment on YouTube. Yeah, I think it's a complete data play for Google. Because now yeah, they, re- I think yeah, that's exactly they right. They can really tell who's doing what, 
and really tie those two things in together and say, okay, Google Plus, you're using you. Here's where you're going. And they can sell that. And that's going to be powerful to them. And uh, I, I think that's a great point. I think that's an absolutely great point. You know, and let's not let's not kid ourselves. That's what Google is all about: is tying those data together and making sure that they can draw some level of marketing optimization around that. So I think that's a great point. Well, you got to remember too. So what's you know, Google wants to be everywhere the consumer is. So yeah. not, that doesn't just mean online. That's everywhere. I mean, that's why they're setting up. Uh, you know, free internet around the world, or they want to. That's one of their goals, so that they can actually keep tabs on us wherever we go and get our behavior and make sure we put, you know, relevant ads in front of us so that they can monetize that. And when we get into the car, they're in the car with us. They're in our house with us. They're in our appliances with us. And not to get too big brotherish, but that's that's what I see as Google. I think the only thing, the only reason why we're not further along in this process is because the feds would be all over them. FTC would be all over them, and that's <laughs> exactly. why they're sort of crawling to that level, and they're trying not to be too conspicuous. Uh, and that's the, that's the truth with media companies. I mean, when they bought Zagat and they bought Frommers, I think that the FTC started, oh, well, Google is starting to get out on the content side. And you saw they sort of backtracked and just pulled the data out, and they're kind of giving the brands back. At least they did so with, uh, with Frommers. So I think from that standpoint, look, watch out. I mean, this is... <laughs> this has got yeah. this has got 1984 written all over it. Man. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think that's I think that's exactly right. But I think you know to your to your first point of this whole of this whole segment, I think Google does what it wants <laughs> and, and lets the others sort of follow along. Well, that I mean that so that speaking of other social networks trying to make inroads to engaging businesses, um, you know, so LinkedIn this week actually made a little news. They're launching showcase pages. So, you know, if you had your Facebook page on your business, well, now you can create a showcase page for LinkedIn. So what do you think, Joe? Is this a good idea for LinkedIn to do this? And is it a good idea for businesses to start go creating showcase pages on LinkedIn? Well, I know where the first time I saw this, Robert, was because I, I always think when you, when you think of LinkedIn and who owns the LinkedIn page, there's always this fight between HR and marketing. Because initially, HR owned it, right? Because we were talking about jobs. We were talking about recruiting, and that's what LinkedIn was for. And now as LinkedIn moves into kind of the ultimate business content network, if you will, uh, marketing wants a piece of that as well. They should have a piece of that. Uh, so now I think this is a great solution. This is, you know what, the LinkedIn jobs page, the company page, the corporate page, you know, HR, you can own that. But all the marketing products and services now can be run and pushed out by marketing. So from that standpoint, I think it's fantastic. But I don't know I don't know about it from a user standpoint. And what what's your take from a user standpoint? Well, you know, I think, you know, one of the questions I most often get it at, you know, whether it's at a master class or it's at a consulting engagement or some sort of private education event that we're doing is where should I be building my center of gravity? You know, should I be aggregating this audience at a blog? Should I be aggregating it on an email list? Should I be aggregating it on Facebook, et cetera? And I think this certainly adds a little more complexity to the mix now because it was kind of clear with LinkedIn that LinkedIn was a promotional channel that we drew traffic out of. And I, I can see why LinkedIn does this, right? I mean, LinkedIn wants to make LinkedIn a center of gravity for that business audience. So I get why they do it. 
I guess it just underlines to me how important it is for a business to have a codified strategic plan when it comes to content marketing because it's going to be very, very tempting for businesses to go out and immediately go out and build showcase pages. And that's just yet another page that they're out there updating and trying to build a community and trying to react to. So to the extent that it's a place where a business can go highlight exactly what you talked about, right? So is there a reason that we're using LinkedIn as a center of gravity to build a community around a marketing or a communication as opposed to the HR-owned page, which is used for recruiting and et cetera? Then great. I think it's a great idea. But to the extent that we're just going to slap up another showcase page you know, as another page because that's where we feel like we have to be because there's so many people on LinkedIn – I just look at it as another waste of, you know, it's a, it's a waste of time. Yeah, I, I know. I agree. I, I think that if you, you need to look at it a couple of different ways, right? You could say, look, we're going, we have these three product pages, let's say, and you might want to just slap up your ad. This is where we, what we are. Here's where you can get some information, almost like a sub web page, right? You're like, oh, okay, because if they're on LinkedIn, they can get our web page product stuff, our product brochure on LinkedIn. Great. But I think the bigger opportunity is as you know LinkedIn moves into this professional publishing platform as they as they say very well that if you have a strategy around that there could be an opportunity but it has to be a it has to be a message it can't be a message about the product I think that I'd almost like to see a pages focused on uh, almost like if you were you know your Huffington post and you're building out into different channels I think you could do the same thing with LinkedIn and say oh, okay well here's our main page but really we want something specifically for solutions around small businesses and here's our page specifically for solutions around enterprises but that becomes educational in nature I think that's where the opportunity is at because as I've been involved in the LinkedIn influencer program I've never seen the type of engagement, like real engagement and really thoughtful comments that you get on LinkedIn versus any other platform. And that, that's what's well, blown me away. And that's where I think there's an opportunity there for businesses. I, and I think you're absolutely right. And I would, I would totally concur. I mean, you know, as I've started to become, I mean, I'm a huge LinkedIn fan for sure. And as I've started to use LinkedIn more to build, you know, community there, I, the engagement on LinkedIn is just, is just amazing. I mean, the people that go there are really interested in actually doing something, you know, so it's unlike Facebook where you see a lot of me too. And I agree, you know, you see a lot of really valuable content going back and forth that are talking about a particular topic. So maybe, you know, it, it, I can really see it working, but I think it's going to, I think it's really going to take a, a, a really thoughtful approach. I mean, this is the way it is with all channels, of course, but as businesses start to think about this, it's really going to take a thoughtful approach as to how to do this. I mean, I think you've outlined one perfectly there, but a thoughtful approach will be key there. Well, you're right. I mean, it's always the run to the disco ball we talk about, right? It's like, oh, here's, right, exactly. oh it's a shiny new tool. Let's go use that. I guess if we could just say to everyone, look, take a step back. Yes, it's a great new product here, but let's get a strategy behind it. Don't run to the tools. Let's make sure it makes sense for our business and the stories we're trying to tell. And, and whatnot. I guess the other, just a side point as we move on here, Robert, I probably don't go anywhere where somebody doesn't ask me, how do I become a LinkedIn influencer? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 mean I asked. Well, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, we talk to CEOs, we talk to CMOs, they're like, how do I get on that platform? What they've right. created there is like rock candy for, for CMOs and for CEOs. I mean, they, everybody wants to have a little bit of it. Um, I, I'm amazed by what they've been able to do. I mean, that's kind of their their sinister plan of getting the world's leading thought leaders on LinkedIn, like you know Branson, and they've even got Obama on there, and they've got 
um, Ariana Huffington and a bunch of other people. I mean, I'm on there, but I'm way down the list. Uh, but oh, come on now. Hey, hey, hey at least I'm <laughs> on the list for right now. So, you know, I could, yeah. I, I'll take that. But, but the honest part of it is uh, that they've really got something there. And that's where, you know, if you can get 50, 100, 300 comments on a post – that are all like real comments and they're not like YouTube comments. I mean, that's, that's amazing power that they bring to the table. And I think that's where we, that these business pages can really pay off if we have the right strategy. It is amazing. And speaking of rock candy, uh, <laughs> some things we're, we're addicted to, um, we are addicted to our sponsor. Um, and our sponsor for uh, this episode, our inaugural episode here is open view. And, uh, Joe, tell us a little bit about open view. Oh, well, you and I talk about OpenView Venture Partners all the time. I mean, you you and I, when we first started to get together, I think we did a presentation to them back in, what, 2009? We did indeed. And they probably drank the Kool-Aid of content marketing before most, and they created something. You know, Scott Maxwell, good friend of, of both of ours, CEO of OpenView Venture Partners, started something called OpenView Labs. And really, you know, it's become sort of the, the go-to resource for entrepreneurs you know, looking for early stage funding. And they've got thousands of pieces of content on there, just about everything you can imagine uh, to really help out an entrepreneur. And the, the one thing that they're promoting that I wanted to talk about a little bit is this uh, content marketing ebook around how to build a content factory. So what they've really done and what's interesting is they've taken sort of their processes for how they put together OpenView Labs and how they looked at the strategy and the creation of the content and the distribution strategy around their content marketing and put it into a handy dandy ebook. Really well designed, really easy to get through. Uh, yours truly has a little bit of content in there. I have to say, and uh, they wanted to make it free for everyone to download. So I've got a short link here. So if you go to bit.ly.com slash PNR factory, that's bit.ly.com slash PNR factory. And we'll put that in the show notes and you can download that and take a look at it. And by the way, if you get some extra time, make sure you go to OpenView Labs as well and just check it out because I think they've done a, a fantastic job and it's really changed their business process about how they get new referrals in and new leads in to, to get companies looking at OpenView as possibly a partner uh, of them uh, you know, investing some money in their tech company. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to the segment of our show that we're going to do regularly every week that we're going to call The Rant, which is where Joe and I get to take a minute each and rant about something that uh, we're truly passionate about. And it doesn't always have to be something negative. It can be something that we love and that we're ready to just make sure that it gets a lot of attention, or it can be something that's really bugging us. And Joe, I know this week you actually do have something that you, uh, that you want to rant about that you absolutely love. Well, you know, it's funny. You say, let's do the rant, and then I immediately think of, let's do something happy. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know what? I can't stop talking about this, and I'm not going to go into, you know, full detail on it. But, you know, we took the family down to MineCon two weeks ago in Orlando at the Orlando Convention Center. And for those of you that don't know what MineCon is, MineCon is the user event for the, uh, the PC and Xbox game called Minecraft. And um, you, well, you're familiar with Minecraft, right? I am, of indeed, course. Yeah. So, so basically, they've they've sold. What I love about this model is Minecraft, and of course, if you've got kids, girls or boys between the ages of like eight or sixteen, I'm sure they played uh, Minecraft, and they're probably addicted to it. The one thing that I think is is fascinating is they've th- sold at least the last numbers I checked a month ago, Robert, 33 million installations of Minecraft, and they've never 
had one piece of advertising, never purchased a dime of advertising to get to 33 million. So in comparison, if you look to Halo and Halo sold 50 you know, million copies of Halo, they've spent billion, you know, millions of dollars to get to that level. And Minecraft, 33 million, no advertising spent. What I loved about this event, Robert, at, at Minecon, is I thought I was at a content marketing event. I am not kidding you. I walked in there, and more than half of the presentations were about how their these kids can create their own followers and create their own followings by creating amazing, helpful content. So it was sessions like, how do I create my own podcast? How do I grow a YouTube following? How do I create interesting content on YouTube? How do I record my stuff? I, and I, I was blown away. They were actually teaching... Um, these kids for the most part on how to be mini media companies. And I just think it's brilliant because they're like, look, they're not spending anything on marketing. They're saying, look, if we just teach our customers to share better what they're already good at sharing, if we're, if we teach them how to share better, they can talk more about Minecraft, get more people to download it. And now I think the last time I checked Robert, they're at 10,000 purchases a day. 10,000 a day. Do you believe that? Minecraft. It's unbelievable. And I think the key to this is the fact that they're actually at their events and in everything they do, they're teaching these kids how to be their own media companies. And I think we, every company listening to this, every marketer has a little bit to learn from, from Minecraft. So I just love your take on that. I don't know. if Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, holy smokes. I mean, that is just, I mean, <laughs> where do I invest? <laughs> First of all, and second of all, it's just—I mean—it's just an amazing thing that they've been able to do. I mean, what it what it says to me is is that it's it's truly an illustration of of, of the new way to go to market, um, and it is the true power of how great storytelling, great uh, great content, really just supersedes anything that you're going to do from a, you know from a paid advertising, and how really scale is now in your ability to reach through networks and content networks and engage people in a way that means something to them. It is no longer about being able to build physical plants anywhere. It is it is about our ability to, you know, to scale using content through through different networks. I mean, and that leads me right into my rant, um, which I'll take a minute to which is actually something that I want to rant on, which is this idea of ROI as a prerequisite to content marketing. It still, to this day, is something that I hear every single time we do a masterclass or when I go in and do an education with a client. And it's this idea that bosses, and I use that word loosely, you know, it could be the CMO, it could be the CEO, it could be the VP of marketing, it could be someone that basically is holding the purse strings about a content marketing initiative. So many times these days we're hearing of content marketing being driven from the practitioner. You know, it is the social media manager, it is the web content team, it is the e-business team that is driving these initiatives. And so many times the question to me is, well, how do I prove ROI before we've even begun? And that is the wrong question to ask. Because if your management is asking you to prove ROI before you've even begun, then how are you even business to, to begin with? Every business is a bet. And ROI isn't a result. And so we can argue about which tactics make sense. We can argue about which promotion will make sense. We can argue about what will actually drive the biggest return on the investment. What there is no argument about today is that content and our ability to manage it well is a good business practice and that it can cover off a business practice that is all over the funnel from drawing attention to our awareness to nurturing leads through a funnel, to creating more loyalty, to creating a brand evangelist. So 
now that we've got that concept, is it's out there. It's done. It is a good thing to do. Now we just need to figure out how we're going to do it. So asking what ROI is on content marketing is a bit to me like asking what the ROI is on the telephone system. We're not going to go back and say, hey, it's, should we have a telephone in our business? No, of course we're going to have a telephone in our business. It's how we use the telephone that determines what the return on investment uh, is on any one campaign and or approach that we're going to do. So with that, let's if there's a way that we can just put an end to the ROI uh, argument, I would absolutely just love that. Until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, until tomorrow, right, when we have to prove it all over again. So um, this brings us up to our final bit, which is our old marketing example. Um, and our old marketing example is going to be in each episode where we actually pick one example from – classic marketing days gone by and actually show how content marketing is not something that's new or or is actually something that's you know uh, a trend uh, in a fad kind of way but rather something that has been around for years and years and years and and Joe I know it's because it's the inaugural episode you're going to bring up your favorite example of all time well you know it's first of all it's important to qualify this a little bit why we even call this show this old marketing is because when you know, you and I do speeches all over the world on this stuff, and we talk about it, and everybody thinks that content marketing is this new shiny thing. And we have to tell them that you know, brands telling stories to attract and retain customers has been going on since really the dawn of time. But we do have one good example that we can actually show that in 1895, uh, John Deere, Deere & Company, launched the Furrow Magazine, and they launched it in, in print. Uh, in 1895, it's funny, we'll put up a picture in the show notes as to uh, the 1897 example of the Furrow magazine. And the reason why I love this example, Robert, is first of all, it's, it's still going on today. So we talk about consistent content being a core to epic content marketing. And of course, you can't be more consistent than 120 years of, of content creation and distribution. But what I love about it is more and more of the companies out there that we talk to, they, they, they ha- I think they have goals that are way too low level. Uh, they're thinking about search goals and social goals, which are all fine. But I think that our goal in a lot of cases should be to be the leading informational provider for our niche. I think that's an opportunity right now. Tomorrow, that might not be an opportunity. Right now, it's an opportunity. And I think John Deere's done that with the Furrow Magazine and just some of these stats so people have them. So right now, they produce the Furrow Magazine in print and digital. It goes to 1.5 million farmers around the world in 40 different countries in 14 languages. It is the largest distributed farming media product in the farming industry. So that's greater than all media companies around there. Actually, it's a non-media company that has the largest circulated media. And I love that because of the fact that I think that's what we should aspire to. You talk about it all the time, Robert, that we need to focus on the aspirations of our customers. And I think we need to have aspirations of our own when it comes to our content marketing objectives. And that's why I love, and I think it's it's sort of apropos to use the Deer and Company's uh, The Furrow Magazine as our first This Old Marketing example. I love it. And, you know, I'll tell you one of the other stories that I love to tell that I've heard directly from John Deere that goes beyond the furrow is that, you know, when you think of it, John Deere, when it first, you know, when John Deere first launched his business, he was basically the Mark Zuckerberg of his day. I mean, he was in a disruptive business because he was bringing steel plow blades to what was ultimately, you know, an iron plow blade market. 
And he would actually go out and teach farmers how to plow their fields better. You know, all of these city dwellers and new uh, migrants to the Midwest didn't, they weren't born knowing how to plow fields. And so he brought, you know, really what Jay Bear would call utility to uh, the idea of teaching farmers how to be better farmers. And that's what I think the spirit in the furrow is such a wonderful thing. It's, it's not about John Deere. It's not about tractors. It's not about mechanics. It's about teaching farmers how to be better farmers. And that's, it's just a wonderful thing to, to speak to exactly what you're talking about, the aspirations of our customers. If only all businesses looked at that and just say, how can, <laughs> and you say this all the time and I use yeah. it, I completely stole it. You say, how do we create better customers? And I yep. think that's what John Deere did. I think that's what Deere and Company does. And I think that if we look at our content marketing in that way, how can we create better customers? It's never about our products and services. It's never about that. The story is never about that. So I think that's where our opportunity is. And I love that example of John Deere. Exactly. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, and some final words, Joe, where are you going to be? Where's, what's, what's coming up for you in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, well, later this week, I'm speaking at uh, a Richmond American Marketing Association event. I've heard it's sold out, so I'm really excited about that. I'm sort of still on the book tour for Epic Content Marketing and traveling around the country there. The good news is I am taking uh, the week of most of the week of Thanksgiving off with the family, so so that'll be fun. But I hear that we are going to do episode two of uh, this old marketing. So, <laughs> so regardless of holidays or not, we're going to do that. So uh, I'm looking to maybe do a little bit less traveling and then kick it up again in December. Absolutely right. I'm the same. This week I travel off to beautiful Little Rock, Arkansas, where I'll actually be working with a wonderful company uh, in the telecommunication space, actually, about their content marketing strategy and helping them with that. And then, like Joe, I'm actually going to be uh, taking a little time off other than to spend some more time with you, Joe, and, and do that. Maybe we can argue over football um, coming up on Thanksgiving. Uh, my Cowboys are playing on Thanksgiving Day, and I'm I'm ever hopeful that they're going to be able to do something with this season that seemingly has gotten away from them. Well, I'll tell you what: if my Browns finish eight and eight, there's going to be a parade in the streets of Cleveland. So that, that's that's what we're you know you you guys are a little bit tired of eight and eight. We love to have eight and eight. That's right. That's right. Well, that's it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose for Content Marketing Institute and This Old Marketing signing off for this episode. Remember, this was our inaugural episode, and we certainly hope that you'll subscribe and look forward to 51 more of these over the course of the next year. Just remember, guys, it's your story. Tell it well. See you next time. <laughs>